Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. Over a hundred years ago, the Yale archaeologist Hiram Bingham, who became the model for Indiana Jones, explored the Andes and found the lost city of Machu Picchu. Recently, Mark Adams retraced Bingham's journey. But Adams is not an adventurer. He's a magazine editor. And, you know, I was a tenderfoot, and I, you know, was not prepared for this at all. I, there, I was gasping for air. I was on all fours at some points on the far side of the river. It was tough. It's bullseye. <laughs> This week, Mark Adams, a guy who had never even slept in a tent as an adult, treks through the Andes with a guide who was basically Crocodile Dundee. And the comedian Dave Hill also throws himself into a difficult situation, performing comedy at Sing Sing. He originally meant it as a goof. About a week beforehand, I, I genuinely was like, whoa, this is not funny at all. This is like a horrible prank I'm playing on myself. Like, I have to get out of this. Plus, our correspondent Jordan Morris helps get America in order by ranking its things. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we like to check in with one of our favorite cultural critics to get some recommendations for things that are worth your time. This week, we are joined by Jason Kotke, the proprietor of Kotke.org, perhaps the Internet's greatest curator of links. Jason, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing okay. I'm excited about these picks. First of all, let's talk about uh, the Voyager record. I wasn't around when Voyager went into space in 1977. I was but a gleam in my parents' eye, but I have seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, and so I am roughly familiar with the fact that there is a golden record inside of Voyager. This link is actually the stuff that is on the record? Uh, yes. There were two Voyager spacecrafts, uh, and they were launched in 1977. And as part of the payload, they decided to put a, a record. It's literally a record. You can put it on a record player and play it. Let's see. What is it? A copper disc, and it's gold-plated. And uh, the purpose of it was to uh, put some information on the record that, uh, you know, if an alien ran across this in, you know, 10,000 years, they would hopefully be able to learn a little bit about Earth. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. One of the cool things is that it is actually full of sounds. What are the sounds that are on it? Well, there's some um, audio greetings in uh, a bunch of different languages. I think there's about, you know, two or three dozen languages. People just saying hi. Salutare la toată lumea. Bonjour tout le monde. Shalom. Hola y saludos a todos. Typical sounds you might hear on the earth. Trains or surf or thunder. And then there's about 90 minutes of music. Everything from Chuck Berry to uh, bagpipe music from Azerbaijan, uh, Mozart. Stuff like that. That spacecraft is, is still rolling, right? Yeah, and as I understand it, the, the Voyager 1 is just about to leave the solar system, the sphere of influence of, of the sun, and go out into true outer space. And it's still sending data back as well. Speaking of space, let's talk about another really cool audio artifact. This is a, an interview 
from The New Yorker in audio form with Stanley Kubrick in 1966 when he was just working on uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, this is a kind of a, a kind of an amazing thing to run across. Yeah, this writer, physicist, Jeremy Bernstein, he, um, he got introduced to Kubrick through uh, Arthur Clarke, who Kubrick was working with on 2001, and he also plays chess fairly seriously. Like, he would go over to Washington Square Park and play chess, and, and he mentioned this to Kubrick sort of in passing, and Kubrick loves chess. And so they began kind of playing chess and, you know, became more and more friendly with him, and I guess Kubrick at some point decided that that he was comfortable enough sitting down with Bernstein to, to, to do a, an extended interview. In praise of Arthur C. Clarke, he, he is, uh, I think, the most poetic science fiction writer. Well, he's also nearly the best informed, I think. Right. He is scientifically the best informed. His narrative ideas, I think, are the most appealing. And he has this, um, he captures the uh, hopeless but uh, admirable human uh, desire to know, you know, these things that they never will, you know, can never really know, and to reach for things that they can never, you know, really uh, reach. Jason Kotke from Kotke.org recommends an audio interview with Stanley Kubrick for The New Yorker. You can also read the article if you're a subscriber to The New Yorker. And the contents of the golden record that was headed to space on Voyager. You can find the links to both on our website at MaximumFun.org. Just click on Bullseye. Or you can find them on Jason's website, Kotke.org. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Mark Adams decided to retrace the steps of the man who uncovered the ruins of Machu Picchu, he was a 40-something magazine editor who hadn't slept in a tent since he was eight. He jokes in his book, Turn Right at Machu Picchu, Rediscovering the Lost City One Step at a Time, that thanks to a Peruvian-American wife, he'd set the all-time record for most visits to Peru without making it to the Incan Citadel. With the help of a guide, a cook, porters, and more than a few coca leaves, Adams managed to traverse the path that explorer Hiram Bingham did when he sort of discovered Machu Picchu in 1911. His book, that is, Adams's, tells three stories of Hiram Bingham's journey through the jungle in the early teens, the story of the Incans' retreat in the face of the Spanish a few hundred years earlier, and the tale of a slightly out-of-shape guy who didn't know you were supposed to hike in two pairs of socks and ended up having to wrap each of his toes individually with electrical tape. Um, Mark, it is great to have you on the show. Welcome to the welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for having me, Jesse. I want to get into the historical elements of this in a second, but let's start mm-hmm. with the personal elements of this. You were a magazine editor. Yep. And had started originally at Outside Magazine, which is, that's like where you write a, reviews of uh, tents, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I started there as an intern when it was still in Chicago about 20 years ago. And, of course, that was, that was not my deal at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't mean to, like, call you out on the radio, but people can't see you, can't see your round eyeglasses <laughs> and your magazine editor's haircut. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore urbanite. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so you ended up working at some other magazines, but then ended up back in the magazine travel travel magazine industry. Yep. When I got to National Geographic Adventure, at first I thought, you know, look, it's just my line editing skills that are important here. But, you know, after about a year or so, I did start to feel a little bit like a fraud. You know, I had never really slept in a tent. And here I am, you know, sitting and, and making thumbs up, thumbs down judgments on which camp stove to put in the magazine, <laughs> you know, basically based on the color of the paint. <laughs> um, how did you end up on on this particular story? Did you did something like cross your path about the impending 100th anniversary? Yeah, the 100th anniversary was coming up. And when you work at a magazine like National Geographic Adventure, you know, Machu Picchu played a role probably similar to the the pre-scandal Tiger Woods at Golf Digest. You know, (laughs) it's in almost every issue. It's on the cover once a year. It's a big seller. So we're always trying to think about ways to cover Machu Picchu. What did you know about Machu Picchu, uh, both as a place and as, uh, I guess you would say, as a travel experience? Well, I knew of Machu Picchu as, you know, the beautiful photo that everybody knows where you have the sort of uh, Lego-like white ruins 
in, in the foreground of the photograph, and then you have that sort of green rhino horn of a jungle in the back, and it's a beautiful shot. And, you know, beyond that, all I knew was you got there on the train and you, you flew from Lima, the capital, to Cusco. And then, you know, it, it was maybe like a, a week to get the whole thing done. Or you could take the Inca Trail, which is one of the world's most famous hikes, which you take four or five days and you, you hike through the Andes. And on the last day, you arrive at Machu Picchu at sunrise. It's supposed to be a big deal. Um, was that appealing to you? No, not really. I mean, I, I'd have, you know, I'd read so many stories about Machu Picchu that it just it just didn't seem that exciting to me. And then I started to get into the story of Hiram Bingham III, who's the, the fellow. He was a lecturer in history at Yale who was sort of this hyper-ambitious, would-be explorer who started studying the Spanish chronicles from the 16th and 17th centuries and essentially – the discovery of Machu Picchu, or the rediscovery as they call it, was kind of like a detective story. He found all these clues of these places out in the middle of nowhere in the Andes of Peru. And he one by one tracked these places down. And when he found one, he could get to the other. And he was looking for a place called the Lost City of the Incas, um, which he, he found when he was there, but he didn't recognize it. And later on came up with all sorts of crackpot theories to, to justify what he had done. Hiram Bingham was this guy who was married into a fortune and was, had sort of schemed his way into a lecturer position at mm -hmm. Yale, but had a very different vision of himself than as a simple college professor. Absolutely. He, he you know, was incredibly ambitious. So he took it upon himself to become an explorer, and he, he did a couple of uh, early explorations down in South America. And then when he came across the, the Lost City of the Incas story, I think he realized this is the big one. This is how I'm going to make my name. This was a, a sort of great golden age of uh, of the explorer in the sense that we imagine from Indiana Jones, which is to yep. say white guys, white guys in, in khaki trousers. Yep. Uh, you know, with bull whips. <laughs> oh yeah, you know there were there were guys all over the continent of South America. They were you know all throughout Africa. You know, at the moment that Bingham gets to Machu Picchu, um, you know Scott and Amundsen are preparing for their their big race to the South Pole. You know, the North Pole had just been reached a couple of years before. So this, I mean, this was like the absolute pre-war crux of the, the golden age of exploration. So what was Hiram Bingham looking for when he headed to Peru, um, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century? He, he got there in 1911 and he had, I think, two objectives in mind. He wanted to find this palace of Vitkos because it was famous for having what was known as the White Rock, this gigantic sort of Winnebago-sized slab of granite with these incredibly intricate geometric patterns carved all over it. And once he found the white rock, he knew he could find Vilcabamba, the lost city that uh, the, the Incas had escaped to at the very end of their empire. So, you know, with these two things in mind, he arrived in Cusco in the summer of 1911, sets off, he finds Vicos, he uses that to get to Vilcabamba. But Along the way, he's also picking up clues from people in Cusco and people on the Urubamba River, which is sort of the main river down there, that there might be something up on a mountain ridge that he might want to take a look at if he has a chance. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mark Adams, is the author of Turn Right at Machu Picchu, Rediscovering the Lost City One Step at a Time. He followed the path of uh, early 20th century explorer slash professor slash sort of the model for Indiana Jones, Hiram Bingham, uh, in the path to Machu Picchu. Um, what did he find and what was, what was its significance in his mind? Well, the big find, of course, was what we now know as Machu Picchu. Um, and what happened was he, he had some idea that there might be something up on this ridge. He had a free day. Uh, he, he climbs up this 2,000-foot uh, uh, basically wall of mountain and gets to the top and voila, there is this white city overgrown. You know, it's a little bit landed and lost, but he gets up there and this uh, young boy, I think he's about eight years old, takes him by the hand and leads him around from one building to the other. The buildings that we, we now know as the most famous buildings at Machu Picchu, he goes to the Sun Temple, he goes to the Temple of the Three Windows, and then he goes up to the very top of the site at Machu Picchu where he sees this, what's known as the Intihuatana Stone, this incredibly enigmatic sort of sundial. And 
you know, Bingham, I don't think he quite understood at the moment what he was seeing, but he realized that he had to fit this into his his plan for finding the lost city of the Incas. So how did he fit all this, all these pieces together? Well, he gets back to New York. He's he's hailed as a hero at the dock and, you know, he, he makes the New York Times and all that sort of thing. And it appears that sometime between summer when he was at Machu Picchu and December when he arrives back in New York, he's twisted the facts. So it's starting to look like he believes that Machu Picchu is the lost city of the Incas. And that's the story that he sticks with for the rest of his career. So, I mean, I I thought it was very interesting the way that he approached this journey. There were two key things that I found fascinating. One was... Um, that he was staffing this operation using a sort of like just by taking advantage of this Peruvian social custom. Maybe you could describe that. Yeah, it was called the uh, the obligatorio. And uh, actually one of my uh, mule tenders, a guy named Uben Alcobos, who's like the ch- chief mule tender in the Andes. Is, he comes from a famous family of mule tenders. When I said the word obligatorio to him, his eyes got wide. He's like, oh, yeah, the obligatorio. It's still notorious. It was a custom by which if you slipped a coin into somebody's hand, they were uh, required basically to, to work for you. It went back to an old Inca practice called the mita. And what Bingham would do is he would take a silver dollar and he would approach a group of men and he would slap a silver dollar into each of their hands and they'd all be like, oh, come on, man. You know, we got, we got crops to plant. But he'd be like, no, 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 you got to help me. So that's basically how he, he uh, uh, you know, keel-hauled a whole gang for himself. The other thing that struck me is the way that he approached these sites as he found them. Mm-hmm. It's easy both to think of him as... Uh, you know, as a benevolent discoverer of amazing new worlds, as, you know, as he presented himself in the teens. Right. Um, And as this kind of evil white guy robbing uh, brown people of their cultural heritage. Right. Um, And he sort of has this weird, I I reminded me of like a Boy Scout camp manual approach to these places. Yeah, he, there was a book called uh, – what was it called? It was, it was put out by the Royal Geographical Society in London, which at that time was the, the number one exploring group in the world. I think it was called Hints to Travelers. Yeah, I was and, thinking, so you want to be an explorer. <laughs> yeah, basically. It was it was like exploring for dummies. And Bingham would get to these sites and he would crack open his, his copy of Hints to Travelers and it would say like, you know, make sure you sketch a plan of the ruins and get it exactly and then take photographs and, you know, don't move anything out of place and, you know, cite your exact location. And he would just follow this book to the absolute letter. And it, I went back to the, the Yale Library where all of his papers are from the 1911 expedition. And his journal is there. And it's, it's basically like he was taking a final exam based on hints to travelers. It's all in there. <laughs> so he actually, I mean, he actually documented these sites quite remarkably. Oh, yeah. Yeah, quite thoroughly. Um, and one of the reasons why Bingham's uh, uh, approach to Machu Picchu in 1911 was so successful is because he brought a camera with him and he was a pretty good photographer. And he brought those photos back and showed them to a new publication in Washington, D.C. called National Geographic, which had just started publishing photography. And when the ambitious young editor Gilbert Grosvenor saw these, um, he was like, wow, we're going to devote a whole special issue to Machu Picchu. You got to get back there right away. And that ended up like essentially creating the modern National Geographic. Yeah, the two fed off each other. It was they put the the Machu Picchu. I think was in uh, spring of 1913 after Bingham had got back from his second expedition to to Machu Picchu, and they devoted the whole issue to it. And it's, if you try to buy one on eBay now, it's about five hundred dollars. It's one of the most famous issues of National Geographic ever published. After a break, Mark Adams attempts to retrace Hiram Bingham's journey. And, you know, I was a tenderfoot and I, you know, was not prepared for this at all. I, there, I was gasping for air. I was on all fours at some points on the far side of the river. It was tough. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported by donations from folks like you at MaximumFun.org slash donate. And by Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, 9 central 
on IFC. Scott Ackerman, Reggie Watts, and a talk show that isn't quite a talk show, nor is it quite a parody of a talk show. It's like a weird nightmare of a talk show, but hilarious. Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, 9 central on IFC. And by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Mark Adams. He's written a book about his journey through the Andes, retracing the steps of the explorer Hiram Bingham, who was sort of the model for Indiana Jones. It's called Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Okay, so let's get back to your story. Having Mm -hmm. read about this journey that Bingham went on, did it sound like an appealing journey for you to go Uh, on? Well, it it sounded appealing in that uh, it sounded like an amazing piece of country. And the thing about Peru is it's famous for having, uh, I think, the greatest number of of, uh, climate zones in the smallest area in the entire world. Something like 21 out of the 34 kinds of climate zones that exist in the entire world can be found in Peru. So, you know, there were situations when I was there when we would wake up in the morning and there would be frost under the tents and we'd climb up to a snowy mountain pass by, by breakfast time and then we'd walk down five or 6,000 feet down an old Inca staircase and we would have lunch in the jungle, you know, with orchids and, and you know, the sounds of uh, tropical birds. So that really appealed to me, the idea that you could see all this various kind of territory while going on foot. What were you prepared for and what were you ill-prepared for? I, I think I was prepared like Bingham was in the organizational sense. It was like okay, I got I got a good team in place here. I got you had a all, nice set of lists. I got my yeah, my fancy new gear. I got all these questions I need to answer. You know, Mister New York Magazine editor. I mean, you were also you had the advantage of being friends with the guy who knew about what kind of crampons you needed or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Uh, you know, I totally had it at you know my disposal. Like the exact crampon. You knew who the crampons did right. was. Yeah, I could, you know, there were like three or four guys in my Rolodex I could call about the best kind of boots to wear, but. I really did not know how taxing it would be when we got down there. The very first thing we did was we walked to um, a place called Chukikirao, which is known as sort of Machu Picchu's sister site because it looks a lot like it. And Peru is actually pushing it as such these days, um, tourism-wise. But what they don't tell you is that you basically have to cross a canyon that is like the Grand Canyon. It's a mile deep to get there, and there's no other way to get there. So you walk all the way down you know, zigzagging on these switchbacks and then you cross this raging whitewater river and then you've got to walk all the way up on the far side. And, you know, I was a tenderfoot and I, you know, was not prepared for this at all. I I was gasping for air. I was on all fours at some points on the far side of the river. It was tough. I know you say that you were a tenderfoot. As I alluded to in my introduction, you were literally a tenderfoot. Your feet were extraordinarily tender. Well, it's because I didn't realize that when you're walking downhill, you're supposed to wear two pairs of socks. This is apparently some rule that, you know, every Boy Scout knows and hikers learn this when they're six years old. But having done neither of those things, I didn't know. You knew that you were supposed to wear one pair of socks in a taxi cab. (laughs) You knew that rule. You know, I'd been wearing one pair of socks for 40 years, and it served me well. And no pairs of socks if you were going to be (laughs) photographed by the sartorialist. That's right. That's right. So, you know, so basically by the end of my very first day of this month-long trip, my feet are completely ground into hamburger. Um, And as you mentioned in the intro, you know, wrapped up in electrical tape. Uh, It was incredibly painful. That's like the grossest thing I've ever read in a book. It was – oh. And, and you know, that was the censored version. The original <laughs> version was like three times as long. And my editor was like, this is disgusting and people are going to just put this book down and not pick it up again. So why, why don't you give us the Cliff Notes version? He just cro- – <laughs> there's just a whole page with red marker through it where he yeah. just wrote hamburger on top. <laughs> it's, you know, he, he gave it to his assistant and she wrote in the margin things like ick, disgusting, gross. So I was like, all right, maybe I'll dial this back just a little bit. But I think it still comes across. The good news is that you had a great team of people with you. As you mentioned, you had, uh, in addition to to the various guys who were in charge of of the mules, which is the only way that you can carry camp stuff through these places, um, you also had a, a charming cook and you had a... Uh, a, a lead dude 
who was a legendary lead dude and an Australian guide who, as far as I can tell, was literally Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> you know? it's, it's funny. I, I you know, mentioned to someone when I, when I got back to New York uh, and John Lieber's came to visit me, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have lunch with my publisher, with my Australian guide who, uh, you know, led me on this adventurous trip through uh, the jungles of Peru. And my friend, of course, was like, uh, is it Crocodile Dundee? Does he carry a big <laughs> knife? And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, he's probably got a machete on him right now. <laughs> So, but John, you know, he he is you know a throwback to the the great era of sort of pre Lonely Planet adventure travel, where you could just go out for six months at a time and travel the world. You know, he drove people across Asia and Africa in a, an open air flatbed truck, uh, an old Bedford leftover from World War II. He did that for years, and he's been you know walking around the Andes for the last twenty years, basically looking for the remaining pre Columbian ruins. He's he's as hardcore as they get. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Mark Adams. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Turn Right at Machu Picchu. To write the book, he retraced the steps of a 100-year-old expedition into the Incan ruins of Machu Picchu. Now, you were essentially, um, as you put it in the book, going to Machu Picchu through the back door. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this traditional path, the Inca Trail, that most people use to get to Machu Picchu. And you were instead going through all of these other places that, you know, are also extraordinary. Maybe they're not Machu Picchu, although they have many similar values. Right. Um, but these were places that there that you would go to and there would literally be no one there or there would be a team of uh, a few government archaeologists. Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, we went to Vitkos where they have the, the giant white rock. There was, I think, a mother and daughter there for about a half an hour and then an archaeologist, and that was it. And John and I had the whole place to ourselves for the whole day. We went to uh, uh, Espiritu Pampa down in the jungle, which is where it's now believed that uh, Vilcabamba, the lost city, had existed. We were the only visitors there. I looked at the log. They, they were averaging about 10 visitors a month, I think it was, something like that. Um, and it's just an extraordinary site. And when we were there, you know, they were pulling pottery out of the ground that was was more beautiful than anything Hiram Bingham had brought back from Machu Picchu. It's just so hard to get there. You can only get there on foot. You can only get there with mules. Um, that'll probably change over the next 10, 20 years because Peru is putting highways everywhere they possibly can. Um, but these places were, you know, I mean, to give you an idea of how far out Espiritu Pampa was, when I got down there, the head archaeologist said, hey, Mark, if you go down to the ruins and you see some guys wearing dresses with bowl cuts, you run. Because <laughs> those guys are Campa Indians and they live by their own laws. <laughs> they don't, you know, the government doesn't even count them. It's like, whoa. You know, and we were only about 60 miles west of Machu Picchu. So you can get pretty far out pretty quickly once you get past Machu Picchu. Did going to places like that make you reevaluate your idea of – what you know what our our quote unquote western culture position in the world is and knowledge and power over the world is a little bit because there were a lot of times when i was i'd be walking down one of these trails and i would think you know what uh you know a tidal wave could wipe out manhattan <laughs> and i wouldn't know about it for 3 days uh and these people it probably wouldn't change their lives one bit you know, and it's good to remember that there are still places like that in the world because, you know, sitting in Los Angeles like we are now or sitting in my office in New York City, it's it's a little difficult to keep that in mind. So it, I think it's a good reminder. So I think our tendency uh, when we consider – I mean our tendency when we consider the, the idea of Incan sites is basically just to start with and end with Machu Picchu. Right. But um, even if we even if we take into account the other places that you've described, um, I I think it's typical for us to consider them as essentially discrete mm-hmm. um, places that are uh, in and of themselves. And it seems like one of the biggest things that you took from this trip was about the significance of their relationship with each other. Yeah. Um, there's a field of study called archaeoastronomy, which studies how buildings were positioned in relationship to the sun and the stars. And uh, a fellow named Johann Reinhard 
started looking at this about 25 years ago. He's actually the guy who found that uh, ice maiden on a um, uh, uh, peak in the Andes about 20 years ago. It was very famous. And what it turns out is that all of these buildings are built along these sort of invisible axes that line up with the sunrise on important days of the year, you know, like the equinox or the solstice. Um, you know, at, at, on June 21st at Machu Picchu, if you stand above the sun temple, you know, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. You can see the sun rise to the east over this sacred peak and it sort of rises like a halo around Jesus' head in a Renaissance painting. And then it shoots this beam of light to the left and lights up that, that green rhino horn of mountain. And then the light sort of flows through the site and then it lights up the sun gate on the right side. And then a beam of light comes through this one window on the sun temple and makes this sort of enigmatic rectangular shape on this rock, this slab of granite that looks sort of like the base of a trophy where the statue's been cracked off. And... You know, it's one of the great mysteries of Machu Picchu to figure out what was on that base at some point and how did the Incas line all these things up? Because when, when the sun sets on other days, you know, it, it sets over a sacred mountain to the west, exactly to the west. And John Levers, my guide, showed me, you know, if you look on a map, all of these sites line up on, on these invisible axes. And it's it's really incredible. I think we've just begun to start discovering, you know, the, the story behind that. Did you come away from it with some idea of a, as you put it in the book, a grand unified theory of the Incas, because that's what Hiram Bingham was working towards through his entire life. And while much of what he thought has since been demonstrated to be incorrect, part of what you learned from going and being there was that there was something much more holistic about what was going on there than you had thought. Well, you know, I mean, there are so many people who go to Machu Picchu and they have these sort of spiritual ideas and they, you know, worship the rocks and they go up to the Intihuatana stone and they they think that they feel, you know, warm vibrations coming out of it and things like that. So, you know, I tend to be skeptical. (laughs) There's a great scene where your guide, John, says, uh, just says like loud enough for the people who are feeling the warm vibrations coming out of the rock to hear. He says, yeah, that's a rock that's been sitting in the sun. Exactly. John is is nothing if not blunt. So, but you know, you you can't help but when you when you walk into Machu Picchu, just sort of get a sense like you're walking into sort of a natural cathedral. And now that people have started to study this through archaeoastronomy, they realize, you know, look, there's a sacred river uh, for the Incas that almost wraps entirely around the site. Um, there are sacred mountains to the north, south, east, and west, including one of the two most sacred peaks in, in all of the Inca cosmology. And the cardinal directions were central for the Inca. Exactly, exactly. And it's also at the site where the Andes sort of crash into the Amazon, which is, which is you know, a very important, uh, you know, sacred piece of landscape there. So, you know, as, as I describe it, it's, it's, you know, if you had a Geiger counter for you know, sacredness of landscape, uh, Machu Picchu would be, you know, off the ne- off the scale. The needle would be buried. Um, so it's it's not just a beautiful site. Um, it also has this sort of sacred meaning um, in an ancient sense to the Incas and to the people today who still live there. It's a very sacred site. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Mark Adams. He's written a book about his journey through the Andes, retracing the steps of famous explorer Hiram Bingham. It's called Turn Right at Machu Picchu. You did this right in time with the 100th anniversary of uh, Bingham discovering Machu Picchu. Right. And I tried to imply quotes around discovering because it's, as he said in, in, uh, in some letters that he wrote, he discovered Machu Picchu sort of the way that Columbus discovered America. Right. Which is to say, A, there was some people there already. <laughs> right, um, right. And B, that it's possible that it's possible to likely that there were even other Europeans who'd sort of been through at some point. Right. There, I mean, when he got there, there were three families of farmers living there. There were corn and tomatoes and peppers growing in the ruins of the most famous buildings at Machu Picchu. So obviously he didn't discover it. Um, there also is some evidence a fellow named Paulo Greer. Uh, who is this great eccentric Alaskan uh, 
a researcher who spends all of his spare time going through old libraries in, in Peru who found uh, some uh, materials that seemed to indicate that a, a German had been up there in the 1860s or 1870s uh, looking for artifacts to sell. So, you know, I'm sure people had been up there many, many times over the years. The, the great thing that Bingham did was he got there, you know, at exactly the moment when you know, people had started using TNT to blow up Inca buildings, searching for the treasure that the Incas had buried beneath them, which was a tradition. Um, so he got up there and took his photographs and got them to National Geographic at exactly the moment that Machu Picchu could still be saved and preserved in you know almost the identical form that we see it in today. If he hadn't gotten up there, there's a good chance there would be nothing left to see. So in making this journey that he made um, and in being faced with these two characterizations of Bingham, one as the guy from 1912 who had just discovered this great lost city and, you know, looked looked great in his little explorer outfit. <laughs> he got a picture of him. He really does look tremendous. He loved to have himself photographed looking tough. Um, and, uh, and the sort of latter-day characterization of him in the, you know, you know, Plymouth Rock. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us sort of right. context, right. which is to say, yeah, there was people there already. <laughs> this guy didn't do nothing. Right. Um, how did you come out of this experience feeling about this guy that you had spent so much time with his writings and also literally physically walked his journey? You know, I came away feeling mostly positive about Bingham. I'd gone in feeling mostly negative, thinking that, you know, he was your typical Westerner who would go in and you know, just steal whatever he could get his hands on and, and uh, publicize it for the sake of his own glory. Um, but I do think that he did preserve Machu Picchu by publicizing it. And I do think that the, the journey he went on and the journeys he went on afterwards were pretty grueling. I mean, he was, he was a tough guy. He got a lot done. There's a site right across the valley from Machu Picchu called Yactapata that Bingham found in 1912. I mean, somebody led him there. But it was so well hidden. It's, you can see it from Machu Picchu now with the naked eye. Uh, it was so well hidden that after he found it in 1912, no outsider saw it again for 90 years. They, some guys went in there and, and dug it out in a few weeks in 2002. So, you know, those are the kinds of places he was getting to. He was in danger and, you know, he, he put his, his life on the line on more than one occasion. How did it change – how did doing this crazy thing – change you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it kind of, you know, opened my mind a little bit. I don't think I would be completely... Uh, You're super into chakras now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't think I would be completely opposed to sleeping in a tent again if I absolutely had to. Um, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd always done a fair amount of international travel, but always, you know, stayed in a decent hotel or with a restaurant nearby. Um and it did sort of open my eyes to the, the world of, of, you know, getting out into the outdoors and, uh, you know, seeing what's there for the sake of seeing what's there rather than for the sake of taking a photograph and putting it up on your Facebook page. Well, Mark, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. My great pleasure, Jesse. Mark Adams is the author of Turn Right at Machu Picchu, Rediscovering the Lost City, One Step at a Time. America is a country fascinated, nay, obsessed, by the big, important questions. What's hot? What's not? Well, correspondent Jordan Morris will tell you in a ranked format. It's Jordan Ranks America. Coming in at number five, it's foot tattoos. Are you looking for a non-verbal way to tell the world I've gotten busy in the parking lot of a fish concert? Get yourself a foot tattoo and cast aside all doubt. Holding strong at number four, it's unemployment. Sure, the economy's still in the dumper, but that just means you've got Barack Obama's personal go-ahead to spend the day catching up on Game of Thrones and messing around on the Internet. With a strong debut at number three, it's Buffalo Wild Wings. 
This casual dining establishment has a 10 p.m. happy hour featuring $5 wells, $5 drafts, and waitresses that promise never to murder you. Still on the rise at number two, it's Grandma's Trinkets. Sure, puppies are adorable, but a ceramic one wearing a beach hat? Game, set, match. With an unprecedented number one debut this month, it's Natural Peanut Butter. Some say that stirring in the oil is a pain, but as Hollywood actress Charlize Theron from the hit film Snow White and the Huntsman says, stirring's the best part. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris co-hosts the comedy program Jordan, Jesse, Go! with a very handsome young man named Jesse Thorne. You can find it in iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org, though. Be advised that it is just full of swears, just lots of, lots of swear words. You can find Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Morris. After a break, the comedian Dave Hill performs at Sing Sing Correctional Facility as a goof. About a week beforehand, I, I genuinely was like, whoa, this is not funny at all. This is like a horrible prank I'm playing on myself. Like, I have to get out of this. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio Interrational. Hey gang, it's me, Jesse. We just finished Max FunCon on the West Coast. It was an amazing good time. It changed innumerable lives. You could probably put a number on it because there's only a couple hundred people there. Anyway, moral of the story is Max FunCon East is coming up in October in the Poconos, which we are putting on with some help from our friends at WNYC in New York. It is going to be a blast. We are already three quarters sold out, so don't wait for that lineup announcement to buy your tickets because there might not be any tickets left. If you want more information, you want to get some tickets now, go to MaxFunCon.com. MaxFunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's tough to describe what my guest Dave Hill does. Uh, On the back cover of Dave's new memoir, Tasteful Nudes, Ira Glass has a quote that probably does a better job than anything I could come up with. He says that Dave is full of unjustified bravado, but also amazingly vulnerable. Dave has had his own TV show, The King of Miami, in which he and a somewhat homeless-looking sidekick rode around Miami on a scooter pretending to buy real estate. His stage show, The Dave Hill Explosion, has hosted folks like Dick Cavett and Rufus Wainwright at the UCB Theater in New York and elsewhere. And he's done almost all of these amazing things while wearing at least one piece of clothing made from purple velvet. Here he is reporting from New York's Fashion Week for, actually, for my web show. Put this on. What are you guys wearing today? Uh, this is Helmut Lang. Ooh, I was going to guess Helmut Lang. Yeah, uh, Rodbier. I was going to say, yeah. Merlin Berger. Uh, see, I thought that was Dress Barn. How does my look compare to some of the other looks you've seen today? Yours is probably the best so far. I was, I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. Everyone's taking pictures of our you shoes. You must be used to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm incredible from the waist down. <laughs> so do you work in fashion? Yes. Do look, you? Look at me. I am fashion. <laughs> do you write about fashion? Sometimes, yes. So you've heard about me, if you write about fashion? No. Pretty much. Wait, what? I'm one of the best manicurists in New York City. Really? Yeah. And what do you think of my nails? Your nails. They're pretty good, you know, and shine them up. Yeah, I get stuff stuck under my nails from shoving my fingers up things. (laughs) Dave, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm honored. So I knew that you were a rock and roll guy, and I knew that you were in a band, but I didn't know that you were a professional musician before you started doing comedy. And in fact, the, the band that you... Uh, were in out of college was a you know had a had a major label record deal and stuff like that yeah yeah we had like a little micro having our rock and roll dreams come true and, and then shattered but yeah i had a band i formed with my friends when we were teenagers called sons of elvis which is 
the best slash worst name for a band ever, <laughs> probably. You still haven't decided on that. I, I go back and forth, you know, because we named it, you know, when we, uh, before we set our sights on global domination, had we known, we would have gone with something like Dawkin or something, you know, <laughs> if we knew we were going to get like a big record deal and be on MTV and all that, which we eventually did, you know, and we, we had a real exciting sort of year and a half. Then as these things go, kind of, you know, next thing I know, I'm painting houses in Cleveland, driving our, our broken down tour van to people's houses to paint, you know, little girls' bedrooms and things like that. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but I was painting a girl's bedroom while she was away at summer camp and the mother was like, hey, do you want a, do you want a radio to listen to? And I was like, yeah. And she brings in this this boombox or whatever and it had, had a sticker from my band on it. And it was like, at first, like a crushing blow because I was like, oh, man, I've really fallen. <laughs> so I was on top for a second. And then I was like, oh, no, this is really cool. She, if she knew I was painting her bedroom, she'd be so pumped right now. <laughs> so I just totally just really painted, you know, extra coat of primer, did the whole thing. Really, really did a nice job in there. Where did comedy come into this? Because you, you weren't. You weren't like a kid that was doing school plays in school and that kind of thing, right? No, not at all. But I think from playing in bands, you know, after my first band, Sons of Elvis, I formed another band and I ended up being the singer because we couldn't find anybody else. And I found that I liked talking in between songs just as much as I liked playing the songs. And like like if an amp would break, I'd be psyched because I would be like, oh, cool. I can do like a tight five while we try to borrow an amp from the other band, you know. And like I would just be talking and talking. And the other guys in the band would just be like, come on, let's go, you know, because, you know, we had we had a you know, we only have a 40 minute set. And I would be happy to talk for 20 minutes of that. And so I think between that and I was I was, you know, a freelance writer, journalist. I was writing for newspapers and magazines and and I didn't really care about the reporting part of it, which was really the bulk of it. I I just wanted to get like one or two jokes in the story. And as long as that the jokes made it past the editor, I was thrilled, you know, like two sentences out of 750 words or whatever in a newspaper. So I think between those two things, you know, I eventually ended up in New York. I came here for the weekend in 2003. And I'd never left. I was just here with a duffel bag. Do you remember the first thing that you did that was a comedy thing? When I first started doing live comedy, like a lot of times I would just read something. And my intention was to just read something and hear people, you know, just I wasn't intending it to be a performance, really. But I was genuinely so nervous and... I right away I realized that people were reacting to all these different things besides what I was saying, you know? Like they were reacting to me just being like really nervous or taking a sip of my Coke or whatever. You know, I realized this sort of the first time. And also like with comedy, I think, you know, there's a lot of stand-up I love. But I, one thing I really don't generally like is, you know, com comedians that are like, hey, how's everybody doing? Everyone doing, you know, what's going on? You know, like really making the audience feel comfortable. Like I never was an interest of mine to be like, you know, because I was nervous. I was anxious. So I was like, if I'm going to feel awful, I'm going to make sure everyone feels awful. <laughs> That's a recipe for successful comedy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Make everyone have a bad time. No, but I thought, you know, I'm not comfortable. Why? Well, I guess I guess I was like, I felt really really nervous really uncomfortable and anxious and everything and i thought it would take so much more energy to try and hide that than to just let it come out however it's going to come out hello and welcome to the dave phil explosion i apologize in advance for completely blowing your minds It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian Dave Hill. He hosts the live comedy chat show, The Dave Hill Explosion, in New York, and hosts a podcast, The Dave Hill Podcasting Incident. His new collection of essays is called Tasteful Nudes and Other Misguided Attempts at Personal Growth and Validation. 
One of those attempts was the time he booked a live comedy show at the legendary prison Sing Sing. It seems like you've made it your business to throw yourself into emotional discomfort. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Like things like going to prison and stuff like that. I'm, you know, prison it started off as a joke doing a show in prison. And then it ended up being actually like a really powerful experience and like one of the best experiences of my life, maybe, you know, because it was, I think I was like pretty overwhelmed by it. I was like, oh man, like, you know, these guys like, you know, if you're, I, I just literally thought, you know, if, if you're in prison for life, like why wouldn't you do something awful to this idiot from Cleveland that's coming in for the afternoon, you know? <laughs> I was like, why Why not, you know? So I kind of got myself really worked up about it. About a week beforehand, I, I genuinely was like, whoa, this is not funny at all. This is like a horrible prank I'm playing on myself. Like, I have to get out of this. And before, and I was, I was going to just call and cancel. And then I get, and they ended up emailing like, they're like, hey, we're just checking in to make sure you're still coming. You know, the guys are really excited to see you. And <laughs> I was just like, oh. And, you know, I was like, oh, what kind of guys? I'm like, oh, it's like 250 maximum security violent felons. You know, and I was just like horrified. And so I went up there and you go there and it's like, you know, it's like walking into the Green Mile or something. It feels like an old timey movie. And I was like an idiot. I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, to the guards, I was like, oh, this is so cool. And they're just looking at me like, gosh, you're an idiot. You know, because this <laughs> like ultimately, you know, it's a job for them. And I don't think any any corrections officer really wants to be doing that. It's just like a way to take care of your family or whatever, make some money or whatever. And uh, and we go in there, and their guys are, you know, they, there was guys on stage, you know, that were stagehands and helping out, and they there was a an open a house band. They were called, like, the official house band. I don't know, but they basically it was, like, inmates who had formed a band. And so it was the band and then, like, the stagehands and, like, the guys that work at the PA, and we're all hanging out and... Um, you know, and I think, again, like, I'm like, I have no idea. What, like, because, you know, you watch, like, Locked Up, Lock Up Raw or whatever, and you think, like, oh, someone's just going to stab me or shank me for fun or whatever. And um, and he was talking, like, I learned, like, some prison lingo. And there's this thing called a fifi, which is, like, a fake vagina they make. It's very elaborate. <laughs> um, it's made out of like a sock and a garbage bag or a rubber glove and like just it's very like a long way to go for what you want the end result to be um, and so I was asking them stuff and I was like is, it, is there really something called a fifi and they were just like what did you just say and I'm like um fifi and I was like oh my god oh my god these guys are so mad. and they were just like you guys get over here. Dave just asked about Fifi's. They're like, how do, how do you know about Fifi's? And I was like, it's on the internet. I read about it on the internet. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? It's on the internet? I'm like, yeah. Like, cause they, they, they're just, and they're like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Our secret's out. Like, people know <laughs> about the Fifi. I'm like, yeah, everyone, it's, if you want to know about it. I mean, there's YouTube videos how to make, and they were just, you know, they don't have the internet there. So they were just fascinated that. You know, that there were like Fifi recipes online and all that. And uh, so that was a bit of an icebreaker <laughs> and talking about that. But I, you know, and then I remember like someone else had said like, hey, Dave. And I like turned around and then, you know, I turned back to face the guys I had been talking to. And I had a total like, you know, high anxiety kind of moment because I turned around and like two of the guys had pens out you know, where they're like facing me with pens and like originally, I'm a, you know, right away, I'm like, oh my God, this is it. They're going to shank me. But then they were like, hey, would you sign the flyer for it? And I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but um, there were guys, you know, I was there with my guitar. I played some guitar and there was a band and these guys had guitars and they're like checking out my guitars. And it was kind of like talking to just like regular dudes and a couple of the younger guys were like totally into Upright Citizens Brigade that did, you know, the Comedy Central show. And they were totally into the fact that that Laura and Carl and I, 
you know, do stuff there. They were like, really? So it was bizarre to be in this place where, and knowing, you know, you're talking to these guys who, when there was another thing, um, you know, when there's like 300 of these dudes, originally I was like, oh my God, it's going to be so weird. I'm going to wonder what everyone did. You know, what did this guy do? Did he kill someone? Did he like burn a building down with people in it or whatever? Arson, arson's a big thing with sink seeing inmates. Um, but when there's 300, you can't, there's no, you can't possibly sit and rack your brain and think about what everyone did. So it just very quickly becomes a bunch of dudes who happen to dress very, very similarly. <laughs> Dave Hill is the author of Tasteful Nudes and Other Misguided Attempts at Personal Growth and Validation. You can find him online at DaveHillOnline.com. Thank you. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a cultural recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I didn't know this until recently, but it turns out that what I wanted from game shows was more running and yelling. And also subjectivity, total subjectivity in many of the answers. Because I thought I didn't really like game shows until I saw this show on Fuse TV called Billy on the Street. Billy on the Street! Hey guys, it's Billy Eichner, and this is Funny or Die's Billy on the Street, a new music and pop culture trivia game show. This is the basic premise of the show. A tall, sweet-looking comedian named Billy Eichner runs around New York City. He yells things into the camera and asks strangers pop culture questions, many of which are totally subjective and based solely on Billy's personal opinions. If they get the answers right, they make a dollar. Miss, miss, for a dollar. For a dollar, you can win a dollar. True or false? If you put a black wig on Jane Lynch, she'd look more like Chris Noth than you'd think. True or false? I, oh. True or false? Uh, uh, true or false? Oh, yes, you win here! Go buy yourself a piece of fruit! Or sometimes something weird, like a sandwich or something. And here you go, here's your prize! It's a sled! There you go! Thank you so much! Are you excited about your sled? Yes, I am! Okay, and about bye. half the time, he screams and yells with delight and jumps up and down like that viral video with the kid who got the Nintendo 64 for Christmas. Just totally goes crazy. Who is absolutely amazing on The Office? Steve Carell! Yes! When the contestants get the questions wrong, Billy cycles through this insane range of emotion. Sometimes he's supportive, sometimes he's worried for the contestant. Once in a while, he will get so angry with an answer that he doesn't like that he stomps out of the camera frame screaming and leaves the poor player to stew on camera in their bafflement. What is the best Christmas movie of all time? Christmas Carol. No, it's Elf! It's Elf! It's Elf! You lose! Billy on the Street isn't self-destructive like Jackass, but Jackass is the only show I can think of that brought this kind of wild cat, nutty energy to TV. Eichner's crazy, catty, emotional roller coaster makes him seem like the world's most sophisticated gay fifth grade boy, which is a remarkable coincidence since one segment of the show is called are you smarter than a gay fifth grader? Okay, guys, out here, ready to play. Are you smarter than a gay fifth grader? We've got two great contestants. We have a fifth grader here. What is your name, sir? Oliver. Okay, and do you like pop culture, Oliver? Yes, I do. Okay, and we have another lovely contestant here we just met on 23rd Street. What is your name, miss? Anita. In fact, the only screen character I can think of who matches Billy for sheer passion and raw capriciousness is Pee Wee Herman, a comedy creation who was defined by his child's emotionality in a man's body. Mad Men stars rich, critically acclaimed actor John Hamm, Gary Sinise, John Malkovich, Vince Vaughn, or George Burns. Maybe John Burns. <laughs> oh, George Burns is dead. He's dead? Oh, my God, yes! And there's oh, nothing funnier than listening to Billy yell at random New Yorkers about how great Meryl Let's Streep go. is. Who do you like? Who's your favorite actor? My favorite actor? Brad Pitt. <laughs> He's not very good. You don't like anybody. I do. I like Meryl Streep! I don't get Fuse, but I'm glad that I sought out Billy on the Street. You can grab it on iTunes now. The first episode's free. It's basically impossible to have more fun than this while watching a television. That's my outshot. Okay, for a dollar, who's better, Meryl Streep or Glenn Close? 
Clean clothes, Bob. What? Get no, that is not the truth. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Special thanks this week to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios, who engineered the New York side of our day interview. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter at bullseye, and you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.